Voice Nation. Well, thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Dr. Crown and Shield, and I won't call you that again. I know you uh, you don't care for that being thrown at you all the time, but you do have a PhD, and you have been responsible for so many cool things, a lot of things that we kind of stand on those shoulders today. Uh, I, I really um, I really appreciate your contribution, and just wanted to to get into your life and find out how you got from PhD to, to sitting around a, a table with people like John Charnley. So let's go back to your school years. Uh, PhD in what? Uh, mechanical engineering. Uh, I, I go back a little further. I, you know, I started with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Um, always had an inclination for mechanical things. Uh, I enjoyed taking cars apart and putting them back together again. And I thought I'd go to engineering school and go work in the automotive industry. So I uh, signed up to, to uh, go to mechanical engineering school. Uh, when I got my bachelor's degree, I had a choice uh, for an all-expense-paid trip uh, vacation to Vietnam uh, or to get a deferment and go to graduate school. So I uh, chose the deferment route and stayed in school, got a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering. And uh, after that, I did go in the Army for a while, but uh, Vietnam had quieted down by then and uh, uh, turned out to be a good choice. The timing was right. So how did we end up in the world of orthopedics? Well, in graduate school, um, I was still thinking I was going to go work in the automotive industry. And I met an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I was in graduate school at University of Vermont, which is a good ski school. I was skiing. The orthopedic surgeon was uh, studying uh, ski injuries. And uh, we met. Uh, he got me interested in some orthopedic problems. And we started studying bone mechanics and ligament injuries. And one thing led to another. And uh, I 
sort of got hooked on orthopedics. I lost sight of uh, that job in the automotive industry that I thought I wanted and ended up uh, in academic orthopedics at the University of Iowa as a researcher. Where was your jump there into, I, I guess Zimmer was your first foray into the the business side of this world, and, and that's where you worked pretty much your whole career. Where, where did that transition uh, take place? Well, I, I was at Iowa um, uh, with an appointment in the medical school where I did research. Uh, I taught in the engineering school, uh, and I was there for oh, seven, eight years. And one day I got a phone call. I knew some people in the industry from several companies and somebody from Zimmer called me one day and convinced me to uh, go over to the dark side and leave academics and go into industry. And and I did. I never did look back. Um, Went to Zimmer, uh, started as a director of research and uh, was there for 21 years, I think, something like that. Uh, when I left, I was the chief scientific officer, um, probably had, uh, reached my level of incompetence and I had the ability to retire and, uh, and I did and went on and consulted, did some other things in orthopedics afterwards, but I had a great time at Zimmer and a great time at the university of Iowa, uh, throughout that whole period. I just learned tons of stuff from, from people that I enjoyed working with and they were kind enough to impart their knowledge to me, and I benefited from it greatly. When I did a PubMed uh, search on your name, so many papers come up with uh, with you cited. Uh, you've got quite a paper trail out there. Uh, is there any particular work of research that you were the most proud of or that was just the most exciting uh, thing to put together? Well, w- w- when I was employed academically, um, you know, the work product of an academic is publications. Uh, and it, it's truly a published in, or Paris, Paris uh, uh, situation. Uh, and uh, so I, I had an opportunity to publish. When I went to work for Zimmer, uh, they weren't expecting me to publish much. Uh, that was no longer my job. But the work product was not literature. Uh, it was uh, implants, implant technology, research and development. Um, but I I enjoyed my academic time and I tried to stay sort of one foot in academics and another foot in industry while I was there. Um, tried to maintain my association with academic individuals uh, as well as doing my industrial job. Uh, and so I did have an opportunity to publish uh, while I was at Zimmer. And uh, and while I had teams of you know scientific people who who worked with me or for me at Zimmer, I encouraged them to publish. And I was quite uh, proud of the fact that uh, so many uh, academic-like publications came out of Zimmer, uh, whether my name was on them or not. Uh, during the time I was there, I think it was imp- I think it's important that uh, the science be shared and the credit be uh, shown on the people who deserve it. So when you started Zimmer, what year was that? I started in 1983. 1983. Okay, so walk us back in time. And what did the implant market look like in 1983? What was going on in hips? What was going on in knees? Uh, What was the state of the art when you came on board? Well, in hips, they were monoblocks. That is, the head was attached to the stem. Uh, they were typically either a 32 millimeter head or a 22 millimeter head. Um, the hip stems 
almost exclusively uh, were cemented. Uh, it was the period in time where c- cementless hips were just beginning to uh, uh, get some notice, uh, and companies were beginning to develop them, but they weren't uh, um, highly present in the market. Um, acetabular cups uh, tended to be um, uh, cemented in place. They were ram extruded calcium stearate containing gamma sterilized in air uh, polyethylene. Um, knees were uh, came in a variety of designs. Uh, um, you know, not the integrated systems we know today, but there were some cruciate retaining kinds of knees. There were there were some early posterior stabilized knees. Um, the uh, you know, the idea of shoulder replacements and elbow replacements and those kinds of things that later came were, you know, were uh, really not present at all. Um, and uh, it, instrumentation was very simple. Um, you could do uh, total knees and total hip cases with a, a single set of inst- a single case of instruments, uh, probably particularly uh, total hips, uh, the, uh, some rasp and a reamer and uh, um, some retractors were pretty much uh, all that was used. Uh, knee instruments were very simple, um, and uh, knee alignment was very imprecise. Um, so a lot has changed. So here we are, uh, that many years later. Um, a lot of the still, a lot of the concepts are still in play, but definitely improvement across the board uh, on every front. I will date myself. And and you're one of the few people who might remember this. I remember carrying a centrifuge in for some of my cemented hip cases. You know, in 1983, uh, a lot of cement cases were hand-packed. Some cases, uh, uh, that progressed into pressurized cement uh, with cement guns uh, to uh, centrifuge cement to try to uh, reduce the porosity within the cement. a lot of a lot of uh, in, innovation in trying to make cement better, um, you know, later to be uh, replaced by innovation to make uh, um, to eliminate cement. Um, but uh, at that time, as you as you recall, uh, centrifuges and vacuum systems and pressure guns and plugs that go down into the canal, um, uh, there was there was much to do about cement. You know, those were amazing times. Uh, there was big jumps going on uh, in materials and design. And one of the biggest step, I think it was the biggest step, was Crosslink Poly. Tell me how uh, we got that product from a research lab to now being pretty much state of the art. Uh, in our world, uh, who invented it? What what role did you play in that? Uh, I, I know that's an amazing story in itself. During the time that I was at Zimmer, uh, you know, the attention to wear uh, and the products of wear and the biologic response to wear became uh, uh, very active subjects uh, throughout the academic community and, and throughout the industrial community. And uh, Lots of efforts were directed towards improving polyethylene. Eventually, the consensus was that uh, cross-linking was good for polyethylene uh, if you could avoid the 
uh, subsequent uh, sensitivity to oxidation that came from radiation exposure that produced cross-linking, but also produced free radicals. Um, some of the, you know, you asked, you know, where did the origins of that come from? Um, you know, th there were some people uh, that uh, were really pretty pioneering uh, in the use of intentionally cross-linked polyethylene, uh, radiation cross-linked polyethylene uh, Gobelar in South Africa, Onishi in Japan were two that had a very early experience um, uh, using it, uh, and 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 then stopped using it. Um, but later, people picked up on some of the good things that uh, they had discovered uh, and found ways to overcome some of the limitations of it. Um, there was um, some good academic uh, work, uh, sort of uh, both in the East Coast and the West Coast, and probably some people in the middle also, uh, but at USC and uh, at Harvard and MIT and in Boston, uh, researchers were doing some really good fundamental research on uh, how to cross-link polyethylene and minimize the effect of oxidation. Um, my role in it was, um, you know, as a, as a person within the industry or within a company who had the responsibility to make a product out of science uh, the universities produce good science. The industry had to produce good products. And, uh, um, you know, we had an opportunity to, uh, uh, do all the product development work, all the qualifications and testing and, and, uh, uh, worked out the, the practical aspects of, of making implants from some of the highly crossing polyethylenes. And, uh, um, that's where people at Zimmer, including myself, um, had an opportunity to uh, contribute to uh, that, which I think became um, uh, probably, as, as you suggested, the, the, the most important contribution to uh, total joint replacement uh, in that period of time for probably that period of time in the past 20 years. Um, it, it really enabled a huge amount of innovation in total joint replacement, both in hips and knees and shoulders and other places that you know, just could not have happened without uh, the crosslink polyethylene. I was reading a paper that uh, that you were involved with back in 2002 about crosslinking and total hip wear performance. And you think we've got that as good as we're going to get it now? I mean, is is there any room for improvement, or is that and vitamin E is as state of the art as we're going to get with poly? Uh, well, I can't, you know, as soon as I would agree to that, uh, somebody will come up with something better, uh, <laughs> right. but you know, from a practical point of view, uh, if you compare the polyethylene from, um, you know, the early 1980s, when, when I got involved in it, uh, to the polyethylene, um, uh, year 2000 and now 2020, um, there've been a huge, huge progress made. Um, you know, the, the wear performance is, you know, improved by, you know, an order of magnitude, um, in these materials. Um, can it get better? Uh, probably. Um, but from a practical point of view, uh, will, it, will the future, uh, improvements produce the same sort of, uh, incremental or substantial benefits uh, that the previous did? I don't think so. Um, you know, the, the material is, is very good, probably good enough, uh, for the intended purposes. Uh, if you look at the average age of, of total joint patients, the incidence of arthritis and 
who it affects and when it affects them. Uh, the longevity of, of joints today has driven from a wear perspective uh, is, you know, in all likelihood going to uh, exceed the lifespan of the individuals. So, um, you know, it's good stuff today, uh, very good stuff. Uh, can it be made better? Perhaps. Uh, but uh, um, we'll see. I want to ask you, what is the coolest project you worked on at your time at Zimmer? And before you answer it, I want to tell you what I think it was, okay. at, least, at least for me. Uh, and I'm, I'm a sucker for shiny things, but I think one of the coolest products was the Epic Stem. I, I just love the mindset behind it, the science behind it. Thoroughly thought that was such a creative solution to an issue that was going on at the time, which is uh, the stiffness related to these fully porous coated stems. So what's, what's your thought on, on the, the coolest thing? Well, th that was an interesting project. In fact, when I interviewed with Zimmer, the day I interviewed with him, uh, you know, I was told that uh, one of the things that uh, was that the company wanted to do, um, uh, other companies were working on it, and they, they wanted to be at the forefront of it, was to come up with a composite total lip. And um, back then, people were thinking of making uh, carbon reinforced uh, polymer hips, carbon uh, carbon composite stuff that came from the aircraft industries. Um, you know, all all sorts of you know rather innovative but substantially unproven ideas of how to make a hip stem better. Um, and uh, so that that was put on my plate uh, the day I arrived uh, from the company. And, uh, and we went down the same pathways that a bunch of other people were looking at. We made some polymer fiber composite materials and we did, we put implants in animals and studied them and looked at biologic response and bone response and um none of them none of them worked out uh and other people in in the in the academic world and in the industrial world none of those worked out either in terms of composite total hips a few were put into in the patients and they failed quickly a lot of them were put into animals and they failed quickly um and but um as our thought process continued um the composite total hip became um, the epic, the epic hip, which was a hybrid. It, it has, as you know, a, 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 a metal core, uh, a, a polymer coating, and a uh, metal uh, biologic fixation surface. Uh, so it had some of the aspects of a composite hip, but it was a metal composite hip as opposed to uh, a carbon fiber one, for example. Uh, and uh, it was an interesting project. Uh, we did clinical studies. Um, you know, the, with it, and uh, it was the uh, first medical implant uh, that used that polymer uh, in uh, in in humans, the peak polymer. Uh, it later ended up in spinal surgery, making spinal cages out of peak, uh, became popular and still in use today. But uh, that was the first human application of the peak polymer um, uh, in, in orthopedics, and. Uh, it was it was it was an interesting project. It was fun to do, and the patients did really well. Uh, and uh, uh, we we had some good studies, some good data, and uh, the things seemed to work. So tell me about the patent side of your life. You've got a lot of patents out there. Do you have any work going on right now in that regard? Anything 
that you're still working on or projects that you're trying to bring to the to the forefront? Well, I'm not I'm not working on a project uh, now, uh, so that's that's an easy answer. Um, and, and my name is on a few patents. Uh, and you know, when I was in academics, the work product, as I said, was publication. In the industry, uh, one of the work products is patent is uh, patents is proprietary technology, and uh, you know. Early in my experience uh, at Zimmer, I was responsible for research and development. So the material scientists and the engineers uh, uh, worked for me, and I worked with them. Uh, and uh, um, patents are an important product uh, from that activity. It's uh, part of the economic basis of uh, competitiveness in the industry, and uh, uh, you know we we had a good system of. Uh, uh, engineers uh, disclosing ideas, uh, a way to uh, have potentially patentable ideas uh, reviewed within the company. Uh, and we had a very active uh, patent process. Uh, I, I remember we started the process of getting plaques made that uh, when a patent was issued, we have a, a, a wooden mounted uh, metal uh, plaque uh, with the, the front page of a patent and the names of the people who were involved in it. We started putting them on the wall uh, near the uh, research and development area in, in the building. Uh, and uh, it was a long wall, and we kept putting up patent plaques and patent plaques, and pretty soon the wall was uh, filled up. We had to find another wall to put them on. And, uh, you know, over the 20-something years I was there, I, I thought uh, one of the important uh, contributions of the time was uh, the intellectual property protection uh, of the company uh, as represented by all these plaques on the wall. Um, uh, it was uh, important stuff to do. One patent in particular that jumped off the page at me was the nitrogen hardening of titanium components. I was looking at some x-rays recently of some old MG knees yeah, that were titanium femurs, and they were still in service. Tell me about that and how you came up with it, and what what inspired you. Well, when when I came to Zimmer uh, in the early '80s, I think it was '83, then I started the Zimmer. Um, the company had um, several uh, implants that had titanium articular surfaces. Uh, that was not anything I invented. Um, you know, they they had a uh, several products in the market that uh, were titanium surfaces, uh, but uh, that got my attention. Uh, uh, and uh, my prior experience, uh, limited in the academic world, was more along cobalt, chrome, and stainless steel articular surfaces. Uh, and we started looking at uh, the, the wear properties of titanium and and uh, how that might be improved. Uh, and uh, you know the Treatment by nitrogen does uh, produce a titanium nitride, a harder surface on the on the titanium, and uh, we were able to implement that on on, on a number of products. And the, you know, the MG knee was was one of those. Um, and uh, you know, as time progressed, um, you know, those articular surfaces and subsequent uh, products became uh, cobalt based, typically, uh, and then became ceramic based. So uh, you know, progress is made on you know, both sides of the joint. We previously talked about progress on the polyethylene side, which I think was enormous project uh, progress. But uh, there's also progress on the uh, the other side of the joint with uh, articular surfaces of 
different metal treatments and ceramics. You worked with some of the greatest orthopedic surgeons uh, in the world during that time period. What what was that experience like? No, I benefited greatly from uh, uh, association with orthopedic surgeons. Uh, you know, the many that I met before I worked as I worked through my academic life, and um, I'm old enough to have remembered that uh, I, I sat at the dinner table with John Charnley. I sat at the dinner table with Maurice Mueller and M- Michael Freeman and some of the you know, classic names in uh, uh, total joint reconstructions. Uh, and uh, um, it, it was a thrill to be there. I was sort of the young buck at the time, and they, they were the senior spokesmen of the, of the uh, practice of orthopedics. But you know, as I as I get to work in uh, uh, implant development, uh, obviously I get to work with quite a number of of surgeons that uh, um, were terribly kind to me and 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 helped me learn a lot. And uh, uh, we developed uh, implants together, and people like John Insel and George Galante and Bill Harris, and you know, people that were within the Zimmer design team uh, projects, and and many of their uh, uh, younger associates, uh, but also I had an opportunity to meet very influential surgeons that had nothing to do with Zimmer. I mean, uh, Charlene was uh, somebody I considered a, a, a good personal friend uh, and never did any business together, but uh, he was a wonderful individual, very kind to me, and we had a great uh, association. Um, and through uh, you know, academic connections that I tried to maintain. Uh, I was a member of the Hip Society. I was a member of the, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And, um, you know, I get, I get to meet and associate with and, and learn from uh, all sorts of people uh, in uh, in the orthopedic world. So it was my benefit for sure. The, the industry back then was making a lot of giant steps, and and as the industry has matured, I think it's transitioned to more iterative steps and uh, smaller steps, but still in the quest to to improve everything. Do you think there's uh, room for another big step in this industry, or uh, have we reached pinnacle to some degree on what we can do with metal and plastic? Uh, what are your uh, What does your future self tell you? Well, you're right. Um, you know. The early on, um, in my experience in the industry, big things were happening. You know, as I said, monoblock hips became modular and cemented became cementless and PS knees were developed and lots of instrumentation was developed and polyethylene became substantially better. Those were big things. Um, my perception is that now things are more incremental, uh, and, than, uh, revolutionary. Um, but progress is continuing to be made. Um, you know, I, I'll digress a minute for you because your your comment reminded me of something that about 20 years ago, I was invited to a uh, investor conference in New York, uh, and it was uh, sponsored by an investment house that was uh, hyping investments in, in small uh, biologic companies. And uh, the they had speakers on the program that uh, talked about stem cells and cartilage grafts and hyaluronic acid and growth hormones and xenografts. And I was the only person invited to speak who came from an implant company. Uh, and uh, I, I remember um, the speaker just before me sort of ended this talk by saying that these biologic solutions to arthritis are going to be so effective in the future 
that five years from now, and this is 20 years ago, five <laughs> years from now, uh, total joint surgery will no longer be performed. And uh, and then that was sort of my introduction to get up and speak. Uh, and I remember getting getting up and saying, I don't think you understand the problem. Um, and uh, I had some data at the time, and I later thought more about the data and ended up publishing a paper about it. But uh, uh, on, you know, who gets arthritis and why do they get arthritis and uh, and talked about uh, the effect of uh, aging the effect of obesity the you know incidence in women versus men uh, um, and uh, you know, being a mechanical engineer I you know I in danger uh, believing my own rhetoric and but I said you know think of arthritis as a mechanical disease you know we live longer we work harder we get obese and we just wear out those joints uh, and that you know the biologic solutions are not going to reverse the process uh, and total joint replacement is going to be with us for the next you know turns out 20 years later that's still here and i think it's going to be here 20 years from now um not and it's not to say that the biologic um efforts uh have not been productive in some regards but they haven't cured arthritis and and they won't um I remember putting up the statistic that uh, obese women have about seven times the incidence of arthritis compared to healthy weight women. Um, and that, you know, if the obese woman gets seven times, is seven times more likely to get arthritis uh, than the healthy weight woman, unless you have a biologic that's a uh, weight loss uh, uh, pill, um, you, you're not going to solve the problem by squirting something in her knee. Um, and, that the audience wasn't really receptive to that message at the time because you know it was uh, you know an audience uh, looking for an exciting biologic solutions to arthritis uh, which to my knowledge haven't happened 20 years later I'm reminded of that quote by Mark Twain the uh, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated <laughs> yes well that that's it the reports of the death of total joint replacement that were greatly exaggerated I had a surgeon tell me many years ago and you know I'm glad I'm talking to you because I'll ask you what your opinion is it always stuck with me he said that vacuum mixing for a knee didn't really matter because you're loading it in compression and cement was very strong. Uh, in that regard. So getting every last little air bubble out of it wasn't really that relevant. So is that a, does that make any sense or? Uh, it, it, it does. Uh, I, I think it does. And I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, it's cement in the, in the hip has pretty well gone completely away uh, towards uh, biologically fixed implants today. Uh, cement right. in the knee uh, persisted longer uh, and and persists longer. There's there's still you know indications for cement in the knee, uh, though you know the origin of cement goes back to John Charnley and he was a hip surgeon. So it it started in the hip uh, and moved into the knee, but uh, its application in the hip is probably more challenging than its application in the knee. I had a surgeon tell me one time who was a revision uh, fellowship trained in. And he said, you're always planning your next case uh, with any procedure. And I think that's what drove a lot of people out of cement was uh, you do a couple revisions and having to pick all that out. It just uh, became that much more challenging. Y yes, it did. Um, and uh, um, 
but you know, sometimes it was one step forward and, and another step back and that some of the moves away from cement, uh, because they were, it was tough to revise, uh, produced, a, you know, another outcome that didn't have cement that needed to be re- revised. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, um, get a, you, you gotta watch what you ask for. You know, you follow this industry long enough and you get a sense of that oftentimes um, to fix one issue, you can inadvertently create two more, right? It, 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 yes, you can. So it just, it takes humility and just try to keep moving it forward. Um, so tell me where you are now. I I know you're into cars. I want to talk about that for a minute. Uh, you're retired and living living large in western north carolina beautiful place to live by the way you said you were originally going to go into the automotive engineering side has your passion for cars always been there where did that come from well i i am afflicted with an interest in cars uh for sure and that started when i was 14 years old probably I, i bought my first disassembled car uh, Model A Ford that I later restored. I ended up, by the time I went to college, I had three Model A Fords. Um, I was always a race fan, um, uh, the sports car racing, uh, Formula One racing. Um, as an engineering uh, student, I was fascinated by you know, car design. So I've been a car restorer uh, literally since I was a teenager. Um, I can't think of how many cars I've restored um, and uh, cars that I've owned. Uh, I've raced cars, uh, uh, vintage raced, uh, uh, sports cars for a number of years. Um, I have a garage full of vehicles right at the moment. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, classic, uh, automobiles, uh, are sort of special to me. Um, I enjoy them probably always will. And, uh, um, I guess I'm not disappointed. I didn't find that job at General Motors. I think I did better in orthopedics than I would have done there, but, uh, you know, it still interests me. Surgeon gave me a ride in his uh, Tesla one time, and I, I looked down, and in a blink of an eye, I realized we were doing 130. Uh, I've never experienced those kind of G-forces before. What are your thoughts on, you know, these newer designs versus the the tried-and-true classics? And Well, the, the new cars are neat. I mean, they get my attention. Um, but the, the antique uh, cars... Uh, interest me more uh the mechanics of them interest me more uh and the innovations that that went on in uh, some of the early cars uh and uh it, i i love the engineering of them. anything from cars from the 1930s uh to you know cars in the the 1970s so one of my departures and 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 car interests is if, if it involves a computer or fuel injection i'm going to stay away from it um you know, I, and, uh, but, uh, um, you know, I, I do own modern cars, uh, and I enjoy driving them, but if you want a really thrilling ride, uh, rather than the Tesla, um, get into an open wheeled uh, formula car and get on a road, road race track. Um, that's a thrilling ride. Um, so that interests me more than owning a Lamborghini. That has to be crazy exciting yeah automobile racing is the most fun you can have with your clothes on you were telling me earlier you've got a Datsun 240z that was kind of a breakthrough car wasn't it that was a car that put Datsun on the map uh in the sports car world they they really did a good job with that car 
uh, and uh, they uh, they raced him with the help of a gentleman that I've, that I've met named Peter Brock, uh, got Dotson into the race world, uh, and they raced Dotson sedans and, and the 240 cars and later 260 cars. Um, and uh, that, that series of cars uh, got uh, Dotson and then Nissan. Uh, and, and, and a lot of attention in the world. It was really uh, prior to that they they were a uh, producer of some pretty pedestrian cars, uh, and that put them on the map with some interesting cars. Cool stuff. Um, looking back over your career, uh, I mean, anything that stands out to you? I mean, if we were just sitting around at a campfire and swapping stories, just to sum up your career, you know, any thoughts? I learned more from from my career than than I taught anyone else, I think. And uh, you know, I I went to engineering school and graduated. Thought I was pretty smart, knew a lot. Uh, and then, as my circle of uh, acquaintances, uh, colleagues uh, grew, um, uh, uh, the amount that I learned uh, from them uh, was enormous. Uh, I, I, you know, I I had people that. Uh, worked for me, but it, it, they weren't subordinate relationships. I mean, they were teachers uh, to me and 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 mentors at times. And uh, um, I, I I didn't anticipate that happening as a young person. And but now when I uh, you know look back over it, I said, wow, uh, what what would have happened if 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 I had met all those people and learned all that stuff? Uh, and uh, um, yeah, it's been so beneficial to me that, you know, it's great. I'm, I, I, I'm sort of a science guy. I, I like science. I'm a techie. Um, and I always will be. And I'm always impressed uh, with what I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm in Google all the time looking stuff up that, uh, uh for no particular need, um, I gotta, I gotta understand it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I enjoy that. We have a lot of reps that listen to this uh, this podcast, and if I gave you a podium and you were talking to reps, I mean, you've been in our world all of your career, and you were advising them on on this industry and and how to be successful in it. And any uh, any sage words of advice? I always viewed my responsibility in orthopedics to be to the patient. Um, and, and I think that's true of everyone, including the rep, um, uh, that our responsibilities are to the patient, uh, and their care comes first. Um, and, uh, you know, what we do has, uh, an enormous impact on, on the patients, you know, as, as a rep and if you're in the operating room and, and, uh, you're, you're observing a surgery and you're presenting an implant system. You you can have an effect on that patient, and, and that's important. But uh, you know your circle of patients that you influence grows as as your experience grows. Uh, you know, people who work inside the the companies and the industry and have help design implants. You know, we affect millions of patients, uh, and uh, and that's an awesome responsibility. So whether you're you know affecting a patient today um, uh, in the operating room um, as a rep or working in the industry designing an implant that's going to go into hundreds of thousands of patients, you know, you know, I'd say consider the patients and consider their interest. And if you serve their interest, you know, in the end, it'll serve your interest. Roy, you're a humble guy. Um, 
But, you know, you have played a role in so many of those giant steps uh, that I referred to in joint reconstruction over the years. And I just I wanted my audience to know your name uh, and your story. And thank you so much for giving of your time today so that I could share just that with them. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. And there you have it, a great conversation with somebody I consider to be the Bill Nye of orthopedics from the halcyon days of joint reconstruction. Hey, I had to throw halcyon out there because we had fungible commodities last week. So we had to follow up with something pretty strong there. So put your finger on that for just a second. I had a dear friend of mine call me the other day. He's looking to hire somebody for his device company. And I said, you know, just out of curiosity, what's the number one trait that you are looking for in your new hire? What do you think it was? Give you a second. All right, close your books. Uh, Was it ambition, drive, talent, authenticity, persistence, stamina, grit? I love that one. I hear that all the time. I don't like it. Grits should only be on my plate with a lot of butter and salt, but not in a sales call. So it was, drum roll, character. So what is character? I love what John Wooden said about character, former coach of UCLA. Be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. And I've always loved the line is character is who you are when nobody's looking. That's a great line. Well, what's the technical definition? The combination of mental characteristics and behavior that distinguishes a person. Uh, That's simple enough, right? Well, it's a lot of things that come under that umbrella. And in fact, I have a picture that I'm going to be uh, going through over the next several episodes that go through 49 character qualities. It's a lot of stuff, but it's it's super quick, and I think it's worthy of, of some attention. So one of the qualities that's on this list is something we've talked about a lot, and that is humility. It's something completely misunderstood these days. A lot of people see it as a weakness. A lot of people don't understand it. It is a strength. It is much harder to be humble than it is just to give in to your your natural state of being and make everything all about you. I mean, that's what most people do these days. And the people that are humble really stand out in bold relief because it is a character trait in short supply. We have had an amazing opportunity throughout this show to sit at the feet of Mount Rushmore and hear some of the greats in the orthopedic space. And the one thread that tied them all together for me is that very word, humility. None of them acted as if they had the answer to everything. In fact, I heard just the opposite, that they were always looking for opportunities to, as Roy Crowninshield said, benefit greatly from their association with other surgeons and to be a student of life and be always learning. That's humility. That is absolutely Uh, humility. I love what Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, said. He said, if you're green, you're growing. And if you're ripe, you're dying. And that speaks to that very thing. If you see yourself as not knowing at all, and that you have much more to learn, no one can possibly know everything there is to know, then you're going to grow. But the moment you think that you're there and that you don't need these people around you, even people that are under you, so to speak. Wasn't that great when he said of what he learned from people that were under him that taught him? I thought, wow, uh, that was just amazing stuff. So character first, followed in close second place by grit. Uh, And you know, so much of that character qualities that we're going to unpack as the show goes forward actually makes you that person that others benefit by being in association with you. 
Uh, it's amazing stuff, and that's what we want to be, right? We not only want to benefit from our association with others, we want to be that person that other people are referring to as well, and that all comes back to good character. So lastly, I just want to say, uh, for the record, I have benefited greatly from my association with, drumroll please, you. Uh, I'm very appreciative of the people in my audience that I've gotten to know and the people I've gotten to interview. Just wonderful experiences, and it's made me better. Uh, It's made me better. So I want this show to be that for you, that it benefits you uh, because of your association with it, and that you can in turn go out into your individual territories or your individual practices, whatever it is you do for a living, and, and pay that forward as well. Be that person that other people are benefiting from by their association with you. So I hope you all have an awesome week. Let's all be humble. Let's be teachable. Let's be gritty. And most importantly, especially, especially right now, let's all be safe. Device Nation.